This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss uh, an issue that has been very much uh, in the news and in our personal experiences uh, here in Texas, uh, and a topic uh, that has been with us for quite a long time as well. How should the United States, how should communities, uh, and how should Texas in particular manage energy? Uh, What kind of energy policy should we have? And how should our society distribute power and manage the use of energy in different forms in different places throughout our country and our democracy? Uh, We have with us uh, a good friend, one of the leading scholars on the topic, and also one of the leading uh, academic thinkers and program leaders on this topic, uh, Professor Varun Rai. Uh, Good morning, Varun. Good morning, Jeremy. Thank you so much. It's delightful to have you here. Uh, Always fun to work with you. Uh, Dr. Varun Rai is the Walt and Elspeth Rostow Professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs, where I have the great pleasure of working with him at the University of Texas at Austin. He's a wonderful colleague. He's the director of the university's uh, Energy Institute, which is a university-wide and really an international center for major research on this topic. Uh, He's also the Associate Dean for Research at the LBJ School. Uh, Varun does remarkably interdisciplinary and rigorous work spanning uh, multiple disciplines, delving into issues of uh, energy systems, complex systems, decision science, and public policy. Uh, He has briefed uh, the U.S. Senate and many other government agencies. His work has been uh, showcased in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Bloomberg News, and many other uh, locations. Uh, He's also a major policy influencer through uh, organizations like uh, the commission that oversees Austin Energy here in Austin, Texas. Um, And uh, one other thing I should mention is that his work has been honored uh, by the David N. Kershaw Award and Prize, which is really a big deal, from the Association for Public Policy Analysis and Management. Uh, He he received an honor as one of the leading scholars uh, under the age of uh, 40 uh, in this uh, field. Uh, So it's really a a treat to have Varun with us to help uh, explain these issues and, and help us think about how we go forward as a democracy in the world of uh, energy that we're living with today. Before we turn to that uh, topic with Varun, of course, we have uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? Do not be alone when the lights come back on. Okay, it sounds interesting, Zachary. Let's hear it. The heat is transferred from the glass to the water in the chemistry diagram I read by candlelight. The wind gyrates the tree branches, broken beneath are the street lights, as if windmills out there in the dimness. Let loose your imaginings of a modern sensibility, put away the image of your neighborhood by light, and watch it sink like the end of a flash bulb into the hills, shrouded deep in the darkness. And don't forget that when you awake, the world will be white, bright and gleaming as if you had never slept. The cold sucks the water into icicles outside. One hangs in the corner of the roof, dangling above the gate, reminding me tauntingly how wonderful it will be to see it fall. 
Forget that you can even picture living in the glow of phosphorescent bulbs that the street lamps once worked or at least flickered into something you could understand. And remember now that when the lights are inevitably on again, the digital clock face will make you jump, scare you senseless. Do not be alone when the lights come back on. Do not be alone when the lights come back on. It is perhaps more of a wish than a warning. Do not be alone when the lights come back on. Maybe if you repeat this too many times, you will feel the lights again with my head already in your hands. Do not be alone when the lights come back on. It will be jarring, maybe dangerous, maybe haunting, maybe even electrifying. Zachary, that that poem makes me in many ways relive what we experienced uh, just a few weeks ago uh, with the the loss of power here in in Texas. Uh, Zachary, what is your poem about? My poem is really about the uh, very strange moment we found ourselves here in Texas in uh, just a few weeks ago, when uh, it was we were we were constantly being reminded of how how modern our world was, and yet we we felt so dependent on uh, such primitive um, factors as weather or, or disease, and I think that's that's a, it's a very strange reminder in our modern world. That's very well said, uh, Zachary, and it's the perfect spot to turn to uh, Varun. Uh, Varun, did, as an expert, as someone who, who who thinks about this more than anyone else I know, did you ever expect that uh, here in the United States and in such a, an advanced progressive city like Austin, Texas, that, that we would confront uh, the loss of, uh, of power on the scale that we did for as long as we did uh, in February? Great. Thank you, Jeremy, for that question. Thank you for having me. And Zach, uh, as always, you continue to blow my mind. That was such a beautiful uh, poem. It captures many, many deep aspects that we hope to tangle a little bit in this this discussion. Jeremy, it was quite uh, unprecedented. You know, as a a scholar who studies uh, energy, electricity systems all the time, I am very much aware that it's not a perfect system. It's a very, very complex system. And, you know, there are disruptions, but the scale and scope of the disruption that we experienced in this crisis was was pretty unprecedented. I grew up in India. I was there until the age of 22. And we were, you know, not unused to almost daily power and water disruptions. But in all those years I was there, uh, we never saw something like this. So this one really beats them all. And what caused it? Uh, how do we understand this? Because it, it, in India, in my experience, these are often planned disruptions. You're told that every afternoon you'll lose two or three hours of power. This was nothing on that scale, n- nothing like that. This was on a much larger scale and, of course, not well planned, right? That is right. Uh, our system operators certainly did not expect this. What really sparked this, uh, Jeremy, you know, we know it was a very severe weather event, a multi-day deep cold snap that sparked a series of interrelated factors that led to electricity shortages across the state, affecting over 4 million customers. So essentially, a few things happened. About 60% of Texas homes are heated by electricity. And so shortly because of the severe cold, the demand for electricity and electricity-based heating went up, and which meant really uh, that the peak predicted demand was really an all-time high for for our electricity system here in Texas. Remember, this is a summer peaking system, and you know we had very high demands 
projected demands. We never, you know, reached here because, you know, we, because of the load shedding. So, so demand was a huge factor. And I'll come back to demand uh, and what could have or should have been done and certainly something very important to keep an eye in the future. So that was one piece. The second piece was disruption to our gas supply, gas production as well as supply. So well heads froze, there are, you know, a midstream, there are compressor power losses, which led to, you know, lower pressure in the gas system. And that all meant that, you know, our production was certainly hurt. But that's important because a large part of our power generation here in Texas is based on gas generation. And so if you're not able to supply the gas to those generators, certainly you won't be able to generate the power. And so that is the third piece, which is, you know, generation was hurt. And this was not just in gas. It was across the board. There was a little bit of coal that was hurt. There was a little bit of nuclear that was hurt. Renewable power was hurt. Uh, but really the biggest one was on gas-based power generation, account for really accounting for about 75% of the lost capacity. And, you know, as you know, one of the CEOs mentioned at last week's hearings at the ledge that Quote, biggest gains would have been if we could have kept gas flowing to the plants, unquote. And, you know, in the end math, Jeremy, this was about 100 times in scale than rolling blackouts in California last summer. Uh, I'll just give you very quickly and we'll come back to maybe unpacking some of this. Cost to the system and to individuals, households, is, is just literally astronomical, something that will become more complex as we see this unpack. So over $50 billion in power bill widespread water system damage at you know at city municipality but also at the household level mental and physical toll uh, there are covid related issues that you know are you know just starting to get highlighted insurance costs related to you know houses and you know uh, other things bankruptcies of companies and local governments loss of life which is you know really the astounding end here and then much more that we'll see so Multiple interrelated factors led to this, starting with the deep weather event uh, and and a huge cost to the system in an absolutely unprecedented uh, scale here, Jeremy. Is it safe to say, Varun, that one of the causes was the insufficient maintenance and updating of the basic infrastructure from equipment to uh, the various other elements of this large complex system? That certainly contributed, Jeremy, but, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that was singularly the the main reason here. And, and part of that is because of that, because of, you know, winterization and equipment maintenance, there was some disruption in power generation itself. But as I mentioned, uh, a lot of that played out because what happened in the gas supply, right? And there, there also, there are these multiple factors associated. So, for example, one of the things you know, that played out is some of, a, lo- a lot of the gas operation, both in the fields, as well as, you know, as you start moving the gas in the pipelines and process them before you send them to the plants, it's dependent on electricity. And as load was being shed, a lot of that power is also getting lost. So you don't have the power to run your gas system and you need the gas to run your power system. So we saw a lot of the circularity play out. So equipment, Maintenance, winterization certainly played a role. And if we were much better on that front, this that would certainly have helped. But it was not the only factor. 
And one more topic that's been in the news because the governor mentioned this himself, I believe, during the crisis on television. Uh, what role did renewables, wind and solar, play uh, in this? Uh, you you made the point, Varun, that gas is is the largest source of power in the system. So so what role did renewals play? All types of power generation, Jeremy, were impacted during this event. This was a massive event including renewables were were, uh, hurt. In the month of February, wind and solar, and largely wind, solar is is not at the same scale as wind. Wind is really pretty big in Texas. About a quarter of installed capacity in Texas is is wind. In the month of February, wind was expected to supply about 10, 15% of, of the demand. So the expectations were not high just because, you know, that's how wind blows. So that was kind of expected. But because of the weather event, wind underperformed even that, right? So, and that led to about three gigawatts of, three to five gigawatts of, you know, lower capacity because of wind underperforming. And there are lots of things that happen, including including frozen wind turbines and, and, and other, other factors. That said, the peak loss capacity in the system that led to the load shedding was about 35 to 40 gigawatts. And about 30 gigawatts of that was because of gas. So you're talking about a 30 gigawatt disruption in the gas-based system and a three to five gigawatt disruption in the renewable system. And, you know, that's, you know, anybody can look at that and said, yes, you know, both, both were contributors, but really the larger, much larger contribution here was because of, you know, the gas-based generation and the gas supply that feeds that generation. Right, right. So, so in other words, if the the gas generation had not gone down in, in the way it did, we would not have had anywhere near the the disruption that we had. Definitely. So that leads, I think, to the 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 next set of questions, Varun, and I think probably some of the most important ones for us thinking about how we move forward, understanding first of all how the state reacted. So, so how did the state react to this, and and to what extent? Did the state fall victim to circumstances it couldn't control? And to what extent were there opportunities that, that were missed uh, as this crisis unfolded? Great. The really very important question for all of us to reflect, uh, Jeremy. Let's, let's begin with what happened during the event itself. So, you know, I think, you know, taking a step back operationally, right, our utilities, the grid operator, which is uh, ERCOT, and especially frontline workers in power plants and utilities in you know water systems, they did a phenomenal job. I mean, you know, we we as individuals and households were struggling to stay warm and you know keep our uh, families fed and clean and healthy. And and just imagine what these workers were going through and putting themselves, you know, everything that they have out there. Um, in such extreme weather to keep uh, the lights uh, on and keep us keep us warm. So I think you know that that's you know if you ask for one single story that was amazing. You know that that is that is it. Without those efforts, the crisis could have been much deeper and impacts would have been you know much worse. I mean it's it's already as worse as you know we have seen here, but it could certainly have been worse. There are also you know lots of other positive and swift actions you know at the at the state uh, government government level so for example uh, reaching out to the federal government you know li- you know lining up and clearing up things f- to have fema support flow remove temporary bottlenecks in equipment repairs at homes and businesses and you know other things you know there are certainly we saw during the event quick 
recognition and movement to you know make sure that you know things things can move forward and t- t- get taken care of during the event and and following it now but there are also you know i would say three pretty big failures even during the event and you know we we still have to talk about what could have been done leading to the event we'll come to that but during the event state coordinated disaster response right this was a disaster by uh, any measure and actually one of the big ones uh, hurricane harvey uh, that we experienced a couple years ago that was a major disaster and this is you know an order of magnitude bigger than that could you know certainly much deeper and statewide all right just gives you a sense of scale of what we are talking about here there was very little of state coordinated disaster response that we actually saw even during the event uh, right um, you know the the 3 4 days of the high intensity from february 15th to 18th households and communities had to organize quickly and take care of themselves really uh, here kudos to the local leaders and our nonprofits in the state that really came together quickly and and helped each other and helped communities and and people the second is communications all uh, the communications from you know different layers of our government were you know all over and inconsistent in many parts i mean it really left our people completely clueless right and you know then I mean, quickly i think individuals made the decisions hey you know we will have to deal with this uh, on our own and lean on our on our neighbors and, and and friends and community to take care of this and and you know uh, that, so that was not very helpful and the third piece which is playing out now and you know that is where a lot of the system changes including policies and regulations and market changes will come from is is really the finger pointing and passing the buck on responsibility that happened even during the crisis right you know it really laid bare some deep gaps that exist in the system in terms of coordination interaction responsibility accountability and created an ugly situation and very bad name for a state that greatly prouds itself with its energy system and what role did structural issues in the grid play? I mean, we've heard a lot about how the Texas grid is separated from the two other uh, American grids. Would the crisis have been better without that that energy structure in the state? That's a great question, Zach. It could certainly have been better, right? You know, the advantage of being connected to other systems is when you have difficulties in your system, other systems can basically prop you up, right? I mean, this is, you know, how we also as face, face this as individuals. We have our social networks and, you know, safety nets that, you know, when we go through crisis individually, uh, we re- reach out to, you know, uh, folks uh, in our network or folks in our network reach out to us and, and help us really go through that. And it's, it's no different from that perspective. There are, other parts of the, you know, other grids that were also hurt, actually, not at the same level, though, right? Because in you know, the market constructs uh, are different and there is ability to take care of some of these, you know, extreme events in, in different ways than our system. So, I mean, all things equal, could it have helped for us to have been connected? Uh, definitely, it, it would have helped. The, the question, though, does it mean that we should we should go ahead and connect? I mean, that raises all sorts of, you know, very, very deep questions as to when and how and if uh, that needs to happen. And this connects, Varun, to, to me, what is the most difficult puzzle to understand, which is we're a state that's filled with so much talent and expertise and knowledge and experience in this area. The UT Energy Institute is one example of this. 
but but there's no state that uh, has as much energy expertise a- as Texas. We seem so unprepared for this in all kinds of ways. Uh, why is that? That's the core of the question, Jeremy. And and just as you said, it is. You know, often, this is a reminder that often beneath the calm, there can be lots of nuances and uh, fragility, right? And it, it, you know, we'll come back to this towards the end of discussion and talk about, you know, what it means. And, you know, in the spirit of your series, this is democracy, what it means to, you know, have have great modern systems. And as Zach pointed out his, in his poem, right, we are in, we live in these, you know, extremely complex modern systems, but uh, how to make sense of it and how to stay connected with it. To your question, Jeremy, you know, there, there are multiple things that play out here and, and gaps that have, you know, not at this scale, but, you know, the different analysts have been tracking those, talking about those over the years, you know, not, not recently only. And now, you know, we see just how interconnected, interdependent and inadequate those uh, pieces are in taking care of this, you know, the energy system at, at this scale. So I'll just, you know, highlight a few. So for example, the first one that comes to mind, you know, if you ask me, Jeremy, what is it that we could have done that would have led to a different outcome, not in the long run, but in the very short run, right? And that is the one that, you know, I, I keep wondering a lot about. And the first thing that comes to mind is, very short-term planning and weather forecasts uh, and so on. So the, typically our system operator, ERCOT, and you know other actors, so generators and, and producers, they work with a 10-year horizon, right? ERCOT certainly, uh, you know, that's kind of the time horizon it works on. And, you know, we have seen, we had a similar experience in 2011, not as intense, but similar. 89 uh, was in, in some ways, there are some early studies coming out, which are saying 89 was perhaps more intense. So, I mean, it's, it, it was, it is an extreme event, right? We don't see this every year or, you know, for that matter, or even every five or 10 years, but this is not something that we have not seen. This is, you know, not completely out of the back and this is not once in a century or once in 500 years event. And so, so that's one thing, right? You know, why, you know, why do we not take a long horizon? And that the answer there is obviously we should, right? So you know, let, let's keep that aside. Talking leading to the days and weeks ahead, there was a lot of warning. You know, I, I, I individually, I knew <laughs> it was going to be very bad, right? And many, many power producers and forecasters already were tracking this. And, you know, many of them were communicating to different pieces of the ecosystem, you know, including the operator and the regulators, as well as, you know, policymakers. And the biggest failure, in my view, leading up to the event was not doing more, by our, you know, operators and and regulators during the event, uh, just a few days or week ahead of the event, even though it was not a complete surprise, it didn't happen overnight. We knew, and and so you know, just how so, for example, what could have been done? Well, you know, we knew we were going to face issues on the supply side, right? And a lot of that is factored already into projections. Yet, you know, if you sense that it, it is going to get very ugly and, and uglier than what may have been planned a few months ago, right? The reports for the next season get done a few months ahead just so that, you know, you have some time to plan. But days and weeks ahead, you know, the indications were that this was going to perhaps get much worse. And if that is the case, you know, obviously you reach out to demand side, right? Which is, you know, something you typically don't plan for. But, you know, you prepare people, you communicate, you say, hey, you know, we really need to come together. And there are lots of other things that could actually be done. But if you do that proactively, 
it could have been a much more managed, real rolling blackouts, not the kind of, you know, mass multi-day uh, deep blackouts. So, so, you know, planning, forecasting, how we communicate and manage demand, even in the very, very short run, uh, is, is one factor. Oversight, we talked about winterization of, of uh, equipment, but then also, you know, how what the expectations are for, for reliability, how is that defined right currently in the power system. Much of our reliability is just left to the energy-only construct that we have. Uh, it works pretty well in, in a lot of, the t- lot of the time, but just as we saw right now, uh, it, it, uh, there, there are certainly gaps. So we are going to see a lot of discussion around what do we mean by reliability, what are our expectations, and is our current market construct for how our electricity system and it interconnection to other parts of the energy system operate, is that adequate? And the answer will be there, there, there are gaps and we need to uh, plug those. I already mentioned coordination across agencies and across levels of government. You know, we, we really saw how that was very inadequate and there's a lot more that needs to be done. And then, you know, the last one I mentioned um, is basically the market features of our market, right? We saw many market, uh, many discrepancies come in the market design, including very high prices, both in power and gas, right? You know, so our system hit the maximum cap that is allowed, that is, you know, $9,000 per megawatt hour. Uh, Typically, that is for a long time. It is expected to last a few hours in a year at different times, not all at the same time. But, you know, this lasted for, you know, many, many hours, right? You know, a couple days straight and more, all at once. And, and that's not how this is supposed to work. Uh, likewise, on the gas side, normally uh, gas has been very cheap for the last several years. Just before the event, it was trading at you know $2, $3 per unit, and it went up to $200. So over 100 times during the event. Uh, right. And, you know, that that's, you know, and so what's going on there? Customers are exposed to different types of these prices, both on the power and the gas side. And, you know, these are not the same problems. Uh, and and then finally, what role does mar- market power of some of the firms who are able to operate as well as potential price gouging? I just mentioned uh, prices went very high up. But this is a complex question. Right. Scarcity prices are allowed to go up because, you know, if there is scarcity, prices should go up and, you know, that helps you allocate resources better. And at the same time, because if there is a lot of scarcity, that means, you know, some actors might have more market power and it could lead to price gouging. It is a very tough, complex question to separate. And it will be months and years before we know uh, anything. And then putting all of this together, Jeremy, I think, you know, it points us to what are the what are the what do we need to change in policies? I will come to that. But essentially, you know, really cl- very two things, very clearly defining what the reliability expectations are and putting in place sets of policies which takes the interconnected nature of this system, this electricity, gas, and you know, other uh, sources, interconnectedness, dependencies. Putting a holistic look at that is just, I mean, that's the one single thing that has come out of this. Varun, just following up on these very insightful comments, um, do you think that in the the balancing that's required in any energy system, and really any system of any kind, the balancing between market and government regulation, have we gone too far in the market direction? And is that part of the cause here? That's a very profound question, uh, Jeremy. Markets markets are, are great. You know, they, they really allow you know, efficient allocation of resources. It, it allows 
you know, because of the competition it, it is able to generate, there are lots of, you know, great things that, that come out of it. The one thing to keep in mind is that in markets as complex and as interdependent as we have in Texas and other parts of the world, markets are part of it. And, you know, there's lots of, and markets are creations of policies. And when you have this type of supply and demand and pricing mechanism, there are also all sorts of constraints that go together with it. So it, it is not as if, hey, you know, here, here is some demand and here is some supply, just go figure it out. There are lots of other things that are going going on. And when that happens, it's important to keep in mind that the layered complexities can make it very difficult to anticipate and address extreme events like like what we saw a few days ago and th- what we have learned and you know this is not a surprise you know we, we have known this that you know just leaving it all for again layered complex market systems to figure it out extreme events you know are 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 harder to address using that so you know there certainly need to be thought and work in terms of understanding and designing corner solutions that can take care of these extreme events. But, you know, I'll, I'll fall short of saying, hey, you know, we went too far. There are, there are other gaps and there are not just gaps in the market design, but there are other other gaps that did exist. And at the same time, you know, it was not as if, you know, there's it, it's purely, you know, based on price and demand and supply. There are all sorts of other complexities that are layered on top of it. Absolutely. And this is this is one of the themes of our podcast each week, of course, which is that, that our world has become very complex and our understanding and application of democratic principles uh, has to change uh, in, in that. It, it, it's not enough to understand how one thought of democracy in the 18th century. One has to update our thinking for this complexity that you articulated so, so eloquently. Uh, I think this takes us really to, to where we always like to, to close, which is, you know, what have we learned? And what can we do differently? And and I wonder if it might be worth focusing for a second on the the question of government policy reform, institutional reform. What are the things that we as a state and that as a as a larger democracy we should be thinking about? What kind of institutions did we not have that maybe we should consider building right now? Thank you, Jeremy. And m- many of these came up uh, already, and so I'll highlight a few uh, again here. The interconnected and fragility of our systems. I mean, these are highly complex systems and they need constant vigilance at, at all levels. You know, you, you can't step aside and, and hope it exists because, hey, you know, these systems exist in, within natural systems, right? They're constantly being, you know, bombarded, if you will, by, you know, all kinds of unexpected and, and rare events, which are increasing in frequency. Right. And, you know, again, we have to keep in mind that we are a summer peaking system. Typically, we encounter in, in, in our ERCOT grid in Texas, typically our issues are in summer. And we know for sure, you know, summer events are going to get uh, more and more extreme. And we have struggled every almost every single year the last several years. In we have been on the edge on our toes every year. Say, hey, do we have enough resources to meet meet? And now we are seeing really the ugliness of it play out in a in a winter. And that just tells you, you know, that that here in this system we are going to be dealing with both ends of it. It raises all sorts of very important and challenging 
technology, engineering, and design questions. It's it's a it's it's a topic for detailed discussion some other time. But you know that's that's something that certainly is is very uh, relevant in terms of you know lessons learned, planning and preparation ahead of time. I you know already alluded uh, to that, prediction and precaution. Uh, you know at at different timescales, right? You know not just years and months ahead, but also in leading you know days into it, right? In knowing, I mean, what this has told us that. Things can go wrong and layer onto each other very quickly. And so every single part of the system needs to be mobilized. And what was not, what was least mobilized, and it will keep everybody wondering and shaking their heads, you know, could we just only if we had banged more on demand or tried to bring demand more into the picture days off. No, I'm not talking longer term. So, you know, that, you know, for customers, you know, it, it's very hard to engage customers, you know, behavior change and, and messaging, communication, coordination, right? Individuals like, hey, everybody else can cut and, you know, why should I? But in events like this, there there are ways to manage that. There are ways to communicate that. There are ways to leverage that community uh, feel, which wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to do, you know, normally in, a, in regular constructs. We already talked about market uh, design, there, there are great features to it, yet uh, extreme events like this require us to pay different types of attention, bring different types of you know, constructs and potentially solutions to that. And, and if that is what it takes to get the level of reliability that this community, our society expects, then and then so be it. I mean, that's, that's primal. It's not, you know, it's, it can't be ideology of we, we must have uh, a completely regulated or we must have a completely deregulated that, that's not where we start we start at what is it that we want and expect from our in terms of reliability and quality of service and then what it takes to get there and then finally uh, you know the resilience and fortitude of, of our households and communities we learn jeremy that you know we as households are resilient and we as individuals and, and neighbors are connected and we care about our communities. And Zach's poem really uh, brings that to the fore in terms of, you know, how events like this really make us go back and identify and connect back to our, our nature, to our existence and, and bring everything we have within ourselves to get through this ourselves. But, but also it's a great reminder that we, we are survivors and, but then also, we also care not just ourselves, but also about our communities. That's that's so well said, and it's another theme that we uh, highlight every week. And you've you've highlighted it so beautifully, Varun, which is that democracy is about freedom, but it's also about the management of different interests and the balancing of different needs and the role of government in in sometimes limiting some elements of freedom for the larger experience and, and um, enjoyment of freedom by, by a larger number. Z- Zachary, do you and, and your generation of in, intelligent emerging citizens, how, do, how, how has this event affected you? Gave us some insights into that in your poem. I think it would be helpful to close with the learning that's occurred and the inspiration perhaps for your generation from hearing Varun and understanding these issues. Yeah, I, I think that we're in a very interesting uh, period. Uh, I think that a lot of young people right now are really seeing how how these systems that 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 have been in place since before our grandparents really really uh, came into the world, how those systems are really not permanent, and how they can so easily change, and 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 how dependent they are 
on on on, on outside factors. And and on the one hand, that's very scary. It shows us how how vulnerable our society is, but it's also very hopeful because there's a lot of space to change these systems and to make them more resilient and to innovate. And I think n- young people today are not going to take these old traditional systems for granted. I think we're really going to to, to bring a different perspective to these issues. Right. I think you've learned that the, the power just doesn't magically emerge in your house. It doesn't just magically get there. Uh, Varun, I think like like Zachary and like me and like many of our listeners, you're you're an optimist. It's one of the reasons I, I, I love being your colleague and friend. Um, just to close, uh, what are you most optimistic about right now? I'm optimistic that, you know, we will learn from this, this deep crisis. You know, as, as communities, we have to take this experience and come out of this in terms of designing our systems better. Uh, going back to what Zach said, it is something that we all forget is it, I mean, you know, our, our, utilities, our workers, people who took, take care of this system, it is a very difficult and important job. It's, it's, a, it's a great reminder of the complexity, but also of the commitment. It, it is required at all single moments, every single time. And we, we take it for granted. Uh, and it's a great reminder that uh, what it takes to do that. So for, for us to both understand and engage more, and that is the one thing that, you know, I really hope uh, Jeremy comes out of this is as individuals, households, families, neighbors, as communities, that we take the time and thought to understand and engage better in the system. And we don't slide back into the comfort, right? And we will not. uh, And keeping engaged with our decision makers, with our policymakers, having our voices heard, you know, I mean, this, this series, This is Democracy, is a, is a, recognition of how important and how you know the foundational bedrock of everything is how individuals connecting and engaging with the system and and i think you know this is deep enough that this will lead to some fundamental realignment and rethinking and re-engagement if you will which which certainly is given the comfort and uh, luxury we all have all the time it works most of the time so i think you know that is what i really hope our our level of engagement and commitment and a collective responsibility in taking this to a better place. It's such a vital point and 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 the perfect point to close on Varun. Uh, many many people who write about democracy across different time periods have made the point that that democracies are susceptible uh, to crises and they are susceptible to catastrophe because it's such a complex system. It's much more complex than an authoritarian system would be uh, where you have one person in charge. But democracies also have historically an extraordinary capacity to learn. And they learn for just the reasons that you described and that you model, Varun, which is the uh, clear-headed and um, really focused analysis of the events and taking from those events lessons to adjust, reform, experiment, and not stay in the same place one was before. And and I think this is such an exciting moment, stressful, but also exciting moment for institutional reform. And and it's, of course, what what you and I and so many scholars think about. And it's what's uh, so exciting, I think, for so many citizens right now to think about how we can reform and improve our democracy. And energy is, is, I think, one of the most important areas. Uh, Varun, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us, sharing your experiences. Uh, I hope our 
our listeners will pay attention to, to your work and in particular to the work of the UT Energy Institute, which is easy to find on the web and always has exciting and interesting events. Uh, thank you for joining us, Varun. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you so much, Zach. Your poem was very inspiring and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. And and yes, thank you to Zachary for his insightful poem as always. And uh, thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.